to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We have been journeying through Philippians, and uh, I'm very excited about today as we've been working our way towards this text. I told you at the beginning of the series that Philippians, it kind of funnels all the way to this text in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 10, and then the thought process of Paul is going to come out of this moment. Okay, so we've kind of been working our way to this moment, and so let me read Philippians 2, 1 through 11 for us. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as we start the second chapter of Philippians, I just want to warn you, and I've just read it, so you know this. Uh, Philippians 2, specifically the first half of this chapter, is going to punch us right in the gut, okay? These scriptures are weighty. There are some rich truths in this chapter, and if you really sit down to study them, to meditate on them, to consider them, you will find so much joy, but they are hard to swallow, some of these moments. Like Philippians 1 was amazing. Like there was so much joy in this room when we talked about Philippians 1. I mean, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, Today he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And there's no one in this room who says, yeah, I, I do that, right? There's no one who says that. Like these moments are going to punch us in the gut Um, as the Holy Spirit illuminates his word for us. But I believe that what we will find in these next 18 verses, we're not doing all 18 today, we'll do the first 11 today, and then the next next week we'll do all the way to verse 18. Um, But I will believe that we will find some beautiful truths. And one of them is that the person who knows the work of Christ, the person who knows the work of Christ, will walk in humility, Okay. The person who knows the work of Christ will walk in humility. But the person who says they know Christ, the person who says they know Christ but they walk in pride, that person is a liar. That's what we see. That person is a liar. So let's jump in in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, I'm going to stop there, Paul makes these statements almost rhetorically. 
He's not saying that they're lacking these things because everything that he said before would make us believe that these things are present in the people in Philippi, that present within them is encouragement in Christ. Present within them is the Spirit's participation. And essentially he's saying, I know all of these things are present, but he has one more ask of them. He wants to make one thing clear, one thing that will complete his joy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of all of one mind. So he's saying, if all of these things are true, if you are encouraged by Christ, if you are comforted by the love of Christ, if the Spirit is among you, if you have sympathy and affection, then you should be of the same mind. You should be united in Christ. And so I want to talk about this word unity for a second. Because there is a big misconception about unity is that it's, it's that unity smothers any freedom to have a free thought. And it smothers any opportunity to be critical. But true unity isn't the absence of critical thinking, but rather it's the ability to be critical with the understanding that we have the same destination in mind. It's the ability to have fruitful discussions on the road in an agreement that we're headed to the same place. Like, you know when churches split? When churches split, are they begin to, like, lose the original calling that God has given them? It's whenever they lose sight of the destination. They lose sight of where they're going. That here, everything we do, everything we do is for the glory of Christ. That we are a community of people that has been saved by God in his grace Man, it, 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 it is so much better than anything else. And so we keep our eyes set on the glory of Christ. And the reality is we aren't going to agree on everything. Like newsflash, we aren't going to agree on everything. But our destination is always the glory of Christ. Um, and so, so many times, man, we, and we, we, we've done this. We've, we, we veer off the road and we begin to focus on things that don't truly matter. That we begin to focus on things that keep our eyes off the glory of Christ. And it's when we do that, when we do that, we become bitter with one another. Rivalries can begin to form. Paul talks about this in Romans. And, and there can be dissension among groups. And we've seen this, right? When we keep our, take our eyes off the glory of Christ, we lose sight of the calling of God. And the great killer of any community is pride. The great killer of any real gospel community is pride. And that's why he says in verse 3 to this church, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like, think about what he just said. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition. Some selfish ambition is the idea that everything exists for my purposes. Everything exists for my purposes. If the destination of my life is that everything exists for my purposes, then I will use anything and any person, any pastor, any church to get what I want. So my spouse exists to make me happy. My kids exist to make me 
happy. And I will say whatever I want to say, even lie if I have to, because the purpose of you existing in my life is so that I can get something from you. And that is so dangerous for a gospel community. That is so dangerous because you come to this place only looking to get. You, you take. You take from pastors. You take from elders. You take from people in your home group. You say certain things to get certain responses from people because your motivation, your ambitions, is only to satisfy yourself. You're, you're what we call, I'm not saying any names. So, You're what we call a church consumer. You're a consumer. You consume, you consume, you consume. But you never give. You never come alongside people. You never serve. It's much easier for you to tear down others rather than build them up and to encourage them. Conceit, on the other hand, is the idea of excessive pride. It's always thinking, well, I can do that better than them. I can tell that story funnier, Colton. I can do that thing better than that person. And it's being bitter when that person is successful. It's being bitter when that person is successful. So what Paul is saying here is that instead of positioning yourself as more deserving, more praiseworthy, that instead of expecting praise from others, you should be quick to praise. Instead of getting mad that no one has asked you how you're doing, maybe you should come alongside someone else and say, hey, how are you? How are you doing? And this idea that we are to be a community of people that are humble, that we approach one another in gentleness and kindness, this idea is all over your Bible. And this idea starts for us with how we view our positioning before God. Like, how do you view who you are before God? Like, you probably wouldn't say this out loud, but do you believe deep down in your soul that God owes you something? Do you believe that God owes you something, that since you've been a good person, since you pay your taxes, you haven't broken any serious laws, you go to church, you maybe even go to home group, you have a pretty good understanding of the Bible, you tithe, and since you have done all those things, God is in some way indebted to you. If I could use a cheesy analogy here, um, there's, Caitlin, there's a picture of a golden retriever that I would like you to put on the screen. Oh my gosh, look at that guy. Isn't that guy so cute? Some of you are like, he looks like my dog. And some of you are like, I want him to be my dog. Um, I would say, for some of us in this room, you view God as a little puppy, right? Um, He exists to make you happy. He exists to make you happy. When you tell him to sit, he's supposed to sit. You, You train him where he's supposed to go to the bathroom and where he's not supposed to go to the bathroom. You teach him little cool tricks, like Paul and roll over. I taught my dog hide and seek, right? And he does it sometimes, okay? Um, you give him a treat when he's obedient. He cuddles up, to you, up next to you and it feels good. However, what if you walked into your living room and it wasn't a bull puppy, but it was a lion? Okay, I think there's another. Yeah, there it is. What if you walked into your living room and it was a lion? What would you do? Would you spank him for being bad? No, you wouldn't. You, 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 there's, there's awe there, right? There's a respect there. There's reverence. You would come to him low. You would come to him gentle. There's awe. There's no training the lion. And that's the picture of God that we see in Scripture. Specifically with Jesus in the Gospels, 
there's something that's different about him. You can take that down. I don't know if they want to stare at that the whole time. Um, but when you see Jesus in the Gospels, there's something different about him. There's something that's unique about him. And so if you will allow me, I want to show us why I believe that's true. That when people encounter Jesus, the ones who receive mercy, the ones who receive the grace of Jesus, it's those who come low. It's those who come humble. There's no pride. There's no pride. So I'm going to give you a few examples. The first one is, okay, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up where? In the sycamore tree for the Lord. Okay, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, the popular understanding of why uh, Zacchaeus was despised and hated as a tax collector was because he was given permission to gather taxes from Rome to take from his fellow, um, fellow Jews. And instead of taking $30 from you, he would take 50, right? And he would keep that 20 for himself. So at minimum, he overtaxes you, and we don't like those people. And at most, he is a thief. Now, that's a simple understanding of a tax collector. The reality is a tax collector purchased the rights from an invading government to tax his own people, a government that was killing and murdering and raping Jewish people. There is not a modern-day equivalent to help me communicate the evil of a tax collector. That's why people are furious when Jesus hangs out with the tax collectors. And Zacchaeus, wanting to see Jesus and not being able to see him because he's short, he climbs in the sycamore tree because he wants to see. He wants to see who this guy is. And he climbs up in the tree to see him. And I contend that he also doesn't want to be seen and Jesus walks up to that tree and he says, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. And how does Zacchaeus respond? In Luke 19, 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And I have, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. A real encounter with Jesus breaks pride. It breaks all the pride. Mercy is given to this sinner, the worst of sinners. Why? Awe, reverence. There's something about him. I've got to get in this tree to see this man. Okay, a ruler of the synagogue runs up to Jesus and says, my daughter is dying. Will you Heal him. And so Jesus starts following him, and a massive crowd starts gathering around him. And a woman with a bleeding disorder touches the garment of Jesus. Do you remember this story? She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be seen. She thinks if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. And Jesus, like literally the text says, feels the power coming out of him, and he stops. Remember, a little girl's dying. And he stops, and he says, Who touched me? And his disciples are like, Everyone. <laughs> Everyone's here, and he says in Mark 5, 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Awe, reverence, respect. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mercy for the humble. All right, Jesus is on the cross. You remember this? 
Yeah, you do. Um, Jesus is on the cross. There's two criminals. On, there's a criminal on either side of him. And one of them starts mocking him with the crowd. And it says in Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, <laughs> railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. No chance for good works that way. The bad, what do we see here? Fear, awe, reverence, and in return, mercy. Just a couple more. In John 8, a group of Pharisees, uh, they bring a woman up to him and they throw her on the ground. They say, she's been caught in adultery. The law says that we should stone her. And what does Jesus do? He gets down on his knees and he starts writing in the ground. We have no idea what he wrote. But one by one, those Pharisees started to leave. One by one, they started to leave. And he says to her in John 8, 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All reverence, mercy for the humble. Last one. In Luke 7, Jesus is hanging out at a Pharisee's house. A whole crowd has gathered there, and it says, Behold, a woman of the, sin, a woman of the city who was a sinner shows up. The natural question is, okay, well, what does she do? Why is she identified as a sinner? Well, Luke doesn't say in his story, it just tells us that she has a bad reputation. It, she could be a prostitute. She could be promiscuous. We don't know, but either way, she has a past, and everyone in this room knows it. And so in Luke 7:38, it says, standing behind him, she walks up behind Jesus, and at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointing, anointed them with ointment. All reverence. Humility. And then he says in Luke 7, 50, he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All throughout scripture, God is exalting. He's lifting up the humble. I mean, think about it. Where is the God in the flesh born? Bethlehem, the lowest of cities. Who are the first people to hear about him? The shepherds, the lowest of the lowest. All over scripture, over and over again, God uses the humble. The prophet Nathan is sent to Jesse to anoint one of his sons as king. Do you remember this? And so Jesse gathers all of his kids and he forgets David. Like David's in the field playing the harp, right? And Nathan has to remind uh, Jesse, hey, I think you're missing someone. And David's like, oh yeah, David, he plays the harp. Like, you sure you need him? And so he goes and gets David and who's anointed king? David. Who's king at the time? Saul. And the Bible says that Saul was a foot taller than everyone else. He was the best hunter, he was the best gatherer, and he was the best worshiper. And God grabs the guy who plays the harp. He exalts those who are humble. Moses, Moses was a stutterer. He was a murderer. And God says, Moses, you're going to be my mouthpiece for the people of Israel. You're gonna be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh. And he's literally, he's like, I, I can't t -t talk, right? I can't. Talk, and God says, you, you will lead my people out of slavery. He exalts the humble.
Now back to Philippians. Listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's a reason this is said. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility begins when you truly understand your position before a sovereign, majestic, mighty king. It begins when a sinner kneels before a holy God and looks at him in all. And when you truly understand the grace and mercy that God has shown you, that God has looked upon you in your sin, and instead of judgment, judgment that you and I deserve without question, and instead of judgment, he has shown you mercy. And the person who truly understands that, that person can't help but be filled with gratitude. That kind of heart explodes with worship. A gracious person loves others well. A person that's full of gratitude, the the gracious person looks to the interests of others. The gracious person doesn't try to move situations around to serve their purposes. They don't lie so, so that they can get the kind of reaction that they want. When you meet with them, this kind of person, the person who is gracious and thankful, when you meet with them, they ask questions about you. They want to know how you're doing. Have you ever met with someone and they only talk about themselves? That's not a gracious person. A gracious person asks questions. How are you? How is your family? How is your kids? How is your relationship with the Lord? What is he teaching you? We should be, like when we get together, like we should be outdoing one another in honor, just asking questions back and forth. Because we are gracious. We're filled with worship. We don't need to earn anything from one another. We're free to love. Now here's the reality. God isn't asking us to do anything that he has not done himself. God isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself, that in Jesus we have the ultimate example of humility. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, Now count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's be clear about what Paul just said here. Paul said the God of the universe has stepped out of heaven and put on flesh, that God has become a man. One of the most helpful texts, John starts off his gospel like this in John 1.1. 1, 1. Listen closely. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, follow this. Speaking about Jesus, John tells us that in the beginning of all things, that in Genesis 1, when God said, when it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That when God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear. When, when, when God said that, when God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be signs and for seasons and for days. So when, when seasons, days, and years are created, and God said that that should happen, John says, Through this word, all things were made through him. That those words are the same in John 1 and in Genesis 1. Because he says in verse 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That the one who said, let there be light is now flesh and bone. The one who separated, think about this. The one who separated the day from the night walked among us. <laughs> like the one who, who said there should be days and, and years, like that, that one put on flesh. The word became flesh. The very word that spoke the world into existence has come to live among sinners. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And, and it says in 17, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So he's not only the beginning of all things, but he is also the way in which all things are sustained. Think of it this way. When Jesus is arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, they grab him with hands that he created and with the power that he sustains. The only reason that they have the ability to grab Jesus and arrest him is because he holds all things together. That's why. With the muscles that he sustains, they use those muscles to slap him. With the moisture in their mouths that Jesus created and that he holds together, they use it to spit on him. With the, the metal that they nail into his hands, he created that metal on a tree that Jesus holds together. Do you see it? They use the things that he's created to crucify him. The only reason he is able to, they are able to crucify him is because he holds all things together. And keep in mind that in any moment, he could have stopped it. Like when they arrest Jesus, remember Peter cuts off a dude's ear and Jesus just magically puts it back on like it was nothing. I love that story. And then Jesus puts it back on the guy's ear and then Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 26, 53, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He essentially says, no one's taking my life from me. I am giving it. See, it wasn't, it wasn't that Jesus was like God or that he was anointed by God to do something. He is God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And so you say, why? Why did he let himself be arrested then? Why didn't he call on the lead legions of angels? Well, the next verse in Matthew 26 tells us. It says in Matthew 26, 56, all this, this is what he tells Peter, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All of this, all of history, all of creation, every moment, nothing happens outside of the plan of God. In this moment, in, in, this moment in the garden, he has all power. He has all authority, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean that he wasn't able to do something. What it means is that he did not intend to use that power for his own selfish gain. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but rather he emptied himself. He walked among us. 
One of the most significant moments in the Gospels is Mark 8. Mark 8, 27. And it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they tell him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, what do those men have in common that the disciples say that people are saying about him? They're all great men who speak for God. And more than that, Jesus, they think the people in the streets think that you're one of the top prophets. They think you're one of the premier prophets. So the word on the street about Jesus is that Jesus is a really great man, maybe the greatest man ever. And this belief that Jesus was simply a great man, it's still the popular thinking today. I mean, we live in our little bubble, right, in our little gospel community, but in the popular understanding of Jesus and the world, that's still the popular understanding of Jesus. And most people aren't really anti-Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. A lot of people are anti-Christians, but they're not really anti-Jesus. They like what he stands for, and they think that he's a really great guy. There's a book called Abrahamic Revolution by Todd Arend. Uh, it's an incredible book, but he shares this story uh, about a conversation with a college Muslim. Uh, this guy at a dinner party, and he says, this man who was a college student and a Muslim um, told Todd about a paper that he just wrote titled, Who Was Jesus? <laughs> and so Todd asked him, like, okay, what did, you, what did you come up with? Like, who, tell me, who was Jesus? And this is what the Muslim college student said. Jesus is one of the most unique people who has ever been born, lived, and died. And Todd says, I was shocked by this. What? And so Todd asked him, what have you been reading? He, he's thinking, I'm about to get in God. This is a missionary. I'm about to get in a gospel conversation. Like this guy's been reading the Bible. He's like, what have you been reading? And he responded, oh, I found all that in the Quran. So in their holy book, the Quran, Jesus is portrayed as a great prophet and a great teacher. See, much of the world still thinks of Jesus as a great man. But in verse 29 in Mark 8, it says, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter speaks up. He says, you're the Christ. He says, we don't believe that you're a prophet. We don't believe that you're just a great teacher. You are God who has come to save us. See, for Peter and the rest of the disciples, story for generations have been talked about, about the Messiah that is coming, the Christ, the sent one who will lead the people of Israel, and saves them. And Peter says, I think that you're that guy. I think you're the guy that my grandma told me stories about. What's ironic about this moment is that they're in Caesarea Philippi, a city named after Caesar, who they believe to be Lord. And Peter says, it's not Caesar who's Lord, it is you. And then in Mark 8.31, it says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and in three days Rise again. And that phrase, son of man, that's a reference to Daniel 7. And Daniel 7, one of the most fascinating texts in all of Scripture. In Daniel 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And this son of man came to the ancient of days, and he came and he was presented before him. And here's what the son of man has the son of man, to him, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not 
be destroyed. That Daniel says, I would see one that comes from heaven. He's like a son of man. And when this man comes to the ancient of days, the father, the father gives him all authority and power over everything. And this authority is not temporary, but it's eternal. His kingdom will not be defeated. He's the king over everything. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, it's meant to bring that kind of imagery to the disciples' mind. Jesus tells them, yeah, the guy who has all power, who has all authority, I'm that guy. The guy who's coming in on the clouds of heaven, I'm that guy. But he says, that guy, the son of man, the one who has all power and authority, he must die. God has ordained that the Messiah must die. Verse 8, Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see it? So here's my question. How are we able as a gospel community to drop our pride? Right? Like sometimes pride is one of those things that we say when someone asks, hey, how can I pray for you? It's like one of those things we say when we don't know, don't know what else to say. Well, I'm just being really prideful. Pride is, it's a killer. Pride before God, pride for one another. So how do we kill that? I think it's possible because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for those who believe that, like if you would say, I actually believe that. I believe um, that Christ died and he rose from the grave and I am a follower of that guy. If you believe that, then that person that person can look to the interests of others. Why? Why? Because they have everything they need in Christ. That person can live in humility because everything that they need in life is sustained and holds together by Christ himself. So when you come to us, you're free to love. You're free to love. You don't need to get anything from me. You don't need to get anything from one another you are able to walk alongside one another and serve because the blood of Christ has covered you. When he sees you, there's not wrath. There's not judgment. There is mercy and grace for the humble who say, yeah, I believe that that guy was God. He was before all things. He wasn't created. He spoke the world into existence. He came from perfect heaven to broken earth, lived a sinless life, walked in humility and died and rose from the grave. I believe that his blood covers me and you and you and you. And so I'm free to ask questions about you, how your family's doing, how your heart is doing, because I don't need to get anything from you. I have everything I need in Christ. That's how a gospel unity is formed. That's how it's formed. When our eyes are set on him, the king who became a man, who died and was exalted, who was risen from the grave. That's how you can love your spouse and your kids. Like really love them is when your eyes are set on him and you say, he bought me with a price. And he has redeemed me and he has renewed me and my life is for him. You can't satisfy me. You can't really make me happy. Only he can. So I want to, if you would stand with me, I want to read these last three verses together as a faith family, almost as a declaration to say this is what we believe about God. Um, this is our destination. And so if we're going to walk in humility, 
this is what our eyes have to be set on, only his glory. And so we're going to read verses 9 through 11 together. Um, and Caitlin, if you would put that on the screen. It says, so let's read this together. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 